Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. The New York Times Magazine's Nicole Hannah-Jones is one of the country's most respected and influential voices on issues of race and education. She was named a 2017 MacArthur Genius Grant Fellow, one of only 24 people chosen globally, for reshaping national conversations around education reform and for her reporting on racial resegregation in our schools. In 2017, she won a National Magazine Award for her story on choosing a school for her daughter in a segregated city. She was in North Carolina this week to kick off Color of Education, a new initiative aimed at addressing racial equity issues in North Carolina uh, schools, and she's joining us today for the full show. Before we tackle our main topics, we open with our headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. Less than three weeks after Hurricane Florence made landfall, the General Assembly convened a special session this week to support recovery in areas hardest hit by the storm. Legislative leaders and Governor Roy Cooper are promising swift action. Cooper's office estimates total damage will be at least twice the $4.9 billion caused by Hurricane Matthew in October 2016. Education-related issues addressed this week include a waiver on student makeup days and pay for teachers while schools are closed. <coughs> Hurricane Florence and the flooding that followed had a big impact on school facilities. In fact, we have nine school districts that are still closed. Jones County suffered so much damage that they will not reopen this school year. Major school damage was reported in Pender, Onslow, New Hanover, and Brunswick counties with some school systems still closed three weeks later. Now, while insurance, state, and federal assistance will cover much of the damage, a new effort has been launched by several former and current state education leaders to help. FAST-NC, which stands for Florence Aid for Students and Teachers, is soliciting private donations. You can learn more by visiting ncpublicschool.org backslash FAST-NC. Finally, State Superintendent Mark Johnson has hired a Chief of Staff for the Department of Public Instruction, and his selection has rankled many in the public education community. Joe Maimoni, founder and headmaster of Thomas Jefferson Classical Academy, a charter school in Rutherford <coughs> County, is an outspoken charter school advocate and critic of traditional public schools. As a member of the state's charter school advisory board, Maimoni has accused North Carolina public schools of milking the federal government through the school lunch program and has said that the media is biased against charter schools for reporting on their lack of diversity. Maimoni resigned in August from the charter school he founded over what the school's board called personnel matters. He began his new job as the chief of staff for the state's public schools on Monday. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read more about each of the headlines as well as other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, we have a very special guest with us today. She's here in Raleigh, where she started her career at the venerable News and Observer, New York Times Magazine's Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole, thank you for being here. Of course, thank you for having me. Now, I mentioned um, resegregation um, in the, the lead-up. You've been reading, researching, writing about school integration and, and issues. Why is school integration um, such an important issue? School integration is so important because 
it's the only way that we've ever shown to on scale ensure black children get the same education as white children. Um, we have a long history of segregating black children in separate schools and then under-resourcing those schools. And we still continue to do that today. You can look in any city um, that has a large percentage of black students, and when those students are segregated, they don't get the same resources in terms of teacher quality, instruction, facilities, textbooks, almost every single measure. So that's a big part. But also, in a democracy, a multiracial democracy, it is important that our children are attending schools together. If we think about public schools as the great equalizer, as we think about them as a common good, then our children should be in classrooms together. Now, um, um, at the event last night in Durham, you, you did a little history lesson, and I, but I think it's important uh, to remind viewers about, you know, I think a lot of folks think, well, we had Brown versus Board of Education, and that made it illegal, and then schools were um, integrated, right. and we were done. I mean, I, I guess, walk us through a little bit about sort of, specifically Brown, and then what, what happened um, here in, in the South, here in North Carolina, and really across the country. Yeah, I think we don't get a very good education in the history of civil rights and the history of race in this country. And so people tend to think, well, the Supreme Court in 1954 said segregation is uh, unconstitutional. And so there is no forced segregation anymore. But the truth is, um, most of the South actually did not believe that it was a legitimate ruling by the court. It was a very radical ruling. Overnight, nine men uh, decide that the last 70 years of legal precedent of separate but equal could not stand anymore, and that the separation of, of children by race was no longer going to be constitutional in this country. And so across the South, you saw a rebellion. You saw what was called massive resistance, which is where Southern uh, politicians colluded to defy the Supreme Court, and in North Carolina took part in that as well. Now, North Carolina wasn't uh, as egregious as uh, many of the more deep South states. And in some places in North Carolina, they understood that if they did some token compliance, then they would probably get away with not actually integrating schools. And so at the much earlier than places in the deep South, you saw school districts in North Carolina removing the laws that required segregation. Occasionally, they would allow one or two black kids into a white school. But overall, it took uh, about 10 years before we saw real desegregation happening across the South. Now, the, um uh, we have a history in North Carolina of segregation academies. Sort of, how does that? I mean, how did that fit in? Like I said, once, as you mentioned, um, the order came in, there was resistance, but then it started happening. So, how did folks who didn't want to see it happen? For what was the response? So it's an interesting question because the voucher, the modern-day voucher movement, actually, its legacy are these segregation academies and resistance to school desegregation. So once the, the federal courts start forcing school districts to integrate, many um, state officials in North Carolina and elsewhere decide that they are going to resist the ruling by funding vouchers that will allow white students to avoid going to desegregated public schools and instead use state money to go into private schools. And so all across the South, including North Carolina, these new academies pop up. They're known as segregation academies because they're white-only private schools that did not exist prior to Brown v. Board of Education. And often they're being funded with taxpayer dollars. And eventually the Supreme Court strikes down the use of taxpayer dollars to fund um, these, these vouchers for white students to avoid desegregation. But when we see the voucher movement now, we should know that the legacy comes from direct resistance to integration. Now, um, you've written before that, I mean, 
I think uh, political leaders, particularly Southern leaders, knew that Brown v. Board of Education was a much bigger deal um, than it was just for integrating schools. I mean, how do you explain? Sort of what did that really mean? Absolutely. So Brown v. Board of Education strikes down an earlier Supreme Court ruling, which is actually considered one of the worst Supreme Court rulings in the history of our country, Plessy v. Ferguson. And Plessy v. Ferguson was not about schools, but it was about segregation and saying that segregation was constitutional as long as separate facilities for black and white people were made equal. And so when the Supreme Court uses Brown to overturn Plessy, there's understanding that it is going to overturn segregation in every aspect of American life, that you can't rule that school segregation is unconstitutional, but then allow segregated restaurants and segregated libraries and segregated parks. And so people understood that this was going to completely alter the Southern way of life. Uh, the reason that people were so, white people were so concerned about schools though, schools are very intimate. If I don't want to go to a restaurant with black people, then I just don't go out to eat at that restaurant. Um, but schools were the place where young children were going to mix. There were a lot of fears that young children, if they meet each other at a young age, might fall in love. And so there were fears about racial miscegenation. And all of these were wrapped up in the resistance to Brown v. Board. So, but where, where are we today? I mean, you, the, we, the, the term resegregation, the public school forum, we talk about it, you write about it. I mean, compared to where we were in 1964, 1968. So after 1964, we see a really period of transformation in the South. Um, nearly every community comes under federal jurisdiction, and they are ordered to do certain things to integrate um, their schools. And what we see in the South is the South goes from almost complete apartheid to becoming the most integrated region of the country for black students, which it actually remains. But after about a generation of enforced desegregation, we began to see those court orders being closed out. Many people watching this will be familiar with the end of the court order in Charlotte-Mecklenburg, the end of the court order in Durham County Schools, the end of these court orders all across the state and all across the South. And as soon as communities... And that was in the 80s, It begins, right? right, it begins in the 80s. It really gathers speed in the 1990s. Uh, the Supreme Court began to make it easier for school districts to be released from the court order, even if they hadn't fully desegregated. And what happens is immediately upon being released from court orders, uh, communities began to do things to resegregate the schools. So when we look out on the educational landscape now, we see that black children um, are as segregated from white children as they were in the 1970s. And we're seeing that the South is losing a lot of the ground that um, it really worked so hard to achieve. Right. We're gonna take a quick commercial break and then we'll continue our conversation but before we go to that break, see if you can answer this question. House Bill 514 passed this year by the North Carolina General Assembly will allow four suburban communities outside Charlotte to create charter schools reserved for their own residents. These communities are on average 78% white. What percentage of Charlotte-Mecklenburg school students are white? Education Matters is brought to you each week in part by Paragon Bank, serving others, enriching lives. Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer D, 29%? 
while the communities outside Charlotte that may create charter schools for their own residents are 78% white, Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools are only 29% white with the remaining largely black and Latino. We're going to continue our discussion with award-winning New York Times Magazine reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, Nicole, you've written about um, uh, efforts that are similar to what we just talked about in that question. Uh, in Alabama, there's uh, really where you saw um, towns secede, if you will, create their own smaller school districts. This is kind of a different variation? Yeah, it's very, very similar. Um, we are starting to see a wave of this across the South. So what made desegregation so successful in the South is most school districts were countywide. And so you could pull from a very diverse range of students in order to integrate schools. As we know, black people tend to be concentrated in more urban areas and the suburban and rural areas tend to be more white. Now we're starting to see in the South kind of the same um, fragmentation of the public schools that we see in the North, which has made desegregation very difficult. You're seeing white communities who are wanting to pull away or secede from very diverse school districts in order to keep their own tax dollars, but also really to maintain a racial balance um, in their schools that is majority white. All right. Now, one of the arguments that um, we hear sometimes is that schools are not really getting more segregated, but the racial demographics are changing. There's just more black and brown students, so therefore the schools are a higher percentage. Does that hold up with um, the numbers? I mean, to some degree, absolutely. We know that um, in the last 20 years, we've seen a, a huge influx of Latino students and um, a smaller percentage of white students, being, white children being born overall. But that doesn't account for a lot of the segregation that we see, particularly uh, in places like Charlotte-Mecklenburg or in Wake County. What you're seeing is a withdrawal of white parents from the public system um, or um, a lot of charter schools that are disproportionately white siphoning white children out of the public system. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, now, you know, some, you're in New York City. I mean, uh, there's been a long, pretty vocal battle in there around the rapid growth of charters. We've seen a big growth of charter schools in North Carolina in addition to other school choice. So what role you know, do, do this charter schools and, and school choice efforts, sort of what role does it play in these issues around uh, resegregation? I think the growth of charter schools is huge. It's, it's different in New York because in New York, charter schools tend to serve uh, low-income black and Latino students. But in North Carolina, charter schools are actually increasing segregation because they are being used as escape hatches for white children. And so you are, again, taking white children out of districts that are very, very um, much so struggling to maintain a racial balance in their schools. And of course, the fewer and fewer white children you have in your schools, and the fewer and fewer middle-income children you have in your schools, the harder that balance becomes. And then it kind of becomes um, a self-fulfilling prophecy, because as charter schools are drawing funding out of the schools, then the schools start the traditional public schools began to deteriorate, and then people say, well, we need more charters because the schools aren't serving our kids well. Well, that's because they are losing large numbers of funding. Right. Um, and so for those who are seeking to profit off of children, it becomes very easy for charter schools to become predatory in communities. And a lot of times, they actually are not producing better results than the public schools, um, but we've, we've come to kind of glamorize this idea of choice, and then as long as we have choice, it doesn't matter if we're actually not producing better results. Um, I tend to be a person who believes that public funding should be going into public schools that have public accountability. Now, Private school vouchers, we have that program in North Carolina too. Um, same issue, or is it different in terms of the impact on, um, on segregation? 
Oh, it's absolutely the same. Um, when you look at who can actually use private school vouchers, um, the money is, is generally not enough to get into the great private schools that uh, were sold. And so often, people are using vouchers to go into uh, private schools that academically aren't really better, but they are more segregated. Uh, private schools don't have to take every student, and so they tend to take a lot fewer students with disabilities or students that may have other special needs. And again, it's drawing money out of public education and putting them into private schools. Uh, the research on vouchers is actually very clear, that uh, students who leave public schools on vouchers actually do not see gains in achievement, which is the whole idea behind vouchers is giving parents choice means they're going to get an ever, a better education. The market is not always better. Right. Who are you writing for when you talk, when you, I mean, you're making an argument that, that we need to, the integration is the one reform that works. Yes. And that our children will be better off. Um, who are you trying to convince? Is it Southerners? Is it Northerners? Is it progressives? Is it Trump voters? Is it Obama Trump voters? <laughs> I mean, who, who, who do you think needs to, to, to understand things? I think I am centrally making my argument to white progressives who say they believe in public education. Um, say they believe in equality, yet are sustaining systems that permit a great deal of inequality. Um, there was a period of time where we understood, even though we were often being forced to integrate, that this was the right thing to do for kids. And probably for at least the last 20 years, we've not talked about school segregation at all. We've talked about making separate schools equal. We don't need to break up um, high poverty and racially segregated schools. We just need to give them more accountability. Except the results are very clear. It has not worked. The same reason that we know that ghettoizing people in neighborhoods is very destructive, that is the same thing that is true for schools. Right. Our kids deserve a chance to be in the same classrooms together and to get the same resources together. And I'm trying to get education advocates, politicians, and regular citizens who say they believe in equal education to actually do something to ensure that we are getting that for all of our children. And that's just as, as we begin to wrap up, you, you've said that I mean, there's nothing magic about uh, um, black students sitting next to a white student, not some transfer of knowledge, but right. it is about if integration brings about more equitable resources, funding, support. Is that um, sort of where you see it? Absolutely. We have not, for a single day in this country, made separate schools for black children equal to white schools. There's no evidence that we have ever done that. There's no reason to believe that we ever will. Um, but also that separation is just unnatural. That separation tells our children that some children are inferior and some children are superior. And when they have to be mixed in the same classrooms together, they come to see each other as equals. And I think that's a society we really want. Do Americans still, do Americans believe in the public good? I think that we have seen a massive erosion of the belief in the public good and that we have come to think about what I think is our greatest public good, which are schools, as being about the market and consumerism and individualism. I think a lot of my work is trying to get us to step back and to understand that we shouldn't just look out for our own best interests, but we should look out for the interests of all the children in our community and understand that it benefits us all to have an educated population, not just ourselves. But I think our work, uh, we have a lot of work to do to start framing this again as not being just about the individual but being about all of us. That sounds like a good place to wrap it up. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. We appreciate your insights. Thank, thank you. you. After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight.
Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you, our viewers. This week, we spotlight Abby Fattrell, the new Assistant Superintendent of Edgecombe County Schools. Leadership Spotlight is brought to you by Participate, where we believe every student deserves equitable access to quality education. I'm from Hertford County, and so I really wanted to give back to a, a county or district that was similar to where I grew up. So I knew two things. I knew it had to be a rural school district, and I wanted it to be a high-need school district. Part of our PK-25 vision has involved um, us revamping our instructional framework. In that framework, just looking at how you design lessons for students, and then once students have gone through that, are students helping you facilitate those lessons? Are they active learners, not passive learners? We also have immersion schools. I got to see firsthand a kindergarten immersion school, and I was blown away. I just did not want to leave. And those teachers are so amazing, and the kids aren't even focused. Like, you know, they're not, they don't seem perplexed or puzzled, they just seem anxious to soak it in. So we know the research behind that is we know that when students are bilingual that they have a higher rate of, of cognition and so we are fostering that. We're looking at how we can support students before they even come to Edgecombe schools and then how we can help them through age 25. So we can ensure are they, will they come back to Edgecombe once they go to college or is there something in Edgecombe that they can help build upon and facilitate. So making sure that they're prepared to take on those challenges to not only build their communities but to help them be successful. We know we have a teacher shortage in Edgecombe and we currently um, are working on a teacher scholar program. It's, it's where students can begin in high school working on courses in education and working towards becoming a teacher. In exchange for agreeing to teach in Edgecombe then we will facilitate three years of your post-secondary um, costs. So if you don't have people who want to stay in Edgecombe and build or start new businesses or work in existing businesses or who aren't able to work in existing businesses because we're not providing the education that they need, then that's gonna cause a town to die out. Our focus is to make sure that students, if they choose to go to college, they could get in. If they wanna go into the workforce, they have all of the skills necessary to be successful. If you know someone that deserves to be recognized, please visit our website, ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. Race permeates nearly every aspect of our society. Look no further than the fierce debate spurred on by NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem to draw attention to their concerns about police shootings and violence against black Americans. Race is also definitely underscoring the debate over the Silent Sam statue on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill that was torn down in August by protesters. Now that statue was erected in 1913 by the Daughters of the Confederacy and dedicated by Julian Carr, a prominent industrialist of the time and also a known white supremacist. In Carr's dedication of Silent Sam, he recalled a personal story, this is quotes, 100 years from where we stand, less than 90 days perhaps after my return from Appomattox, I horsewhipped a Negro wench until her skirts hung in shreds, because upon these streets of this quiet village she had publicly insulted and maligned a Southern lady. He said he performed this, quote, pleasing duty in front of an entire garrison of soldiers. This is our history, and it will continue to haunt our present and our future unless we find ways to heal and move forward. 
Nicole gave us a lot to think about this week. Over the next two weeks, we're going to talk further, first with students to explore race relations in schools, and the following week, we have New York Times bestselling author Richard Rothstein. His latest book, The Color of Law, focuses on how local, state, and federal laws built a segregated America. Make sure you set your DVRs and tune in. So that's it for this week's show. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week.